Hi, this is Dr. William Renner. Thank you for joining us in what we think is the best podcast on evidence-based medicine in the U.S. today. I'm here with Dr. Alan Safdie, world-famous gastroenterologist. Uh, we've both been active in uh, clinical research for more than 30 years. We try to stay at the cutting edge of clinical research. Alan, today I want to talk more about covid uh, so far, there's 142,000 known deaths in the United States. Uh, as we've said before from our other podcasts, I think that number is much, much, much higher. There's also a recent article that came out just a couple of days ago saying that the carrier rate may be as high as 30% of individuals who don't have symptoms but are carriers. Uh, Alan, let's talk about the long-term consequences of COVID, because I, I think there's many uh, in the literature so far. Uh, would you comment on that? Yeah, Bill, thank you very much. Um, what concerns me is, especially you just mentioned carrier rates, that young people think that they're not susceptible to some of the long-term complications of this virus. Uh, and they are. Uh, people have been admitted to the hospital in the younger age groups since the inception, since we saw the beginning of this disease, uh, beyond being potential carriers of the disease that can endanger the older population, uh, the younger population is still susceptible to long-term effects of COVID-19, such as damaged lungs. They might not even realize their lungs are getting damaged. Blood clots, heart attacks, strokes. Uh, the message has to be that we are all at risk. And if we're gonna stop the propagation of this disease, we have to get to the younger group. And we've seen people in their 20s um, being admitted to the hospital. It's not that unusual. Um, it's more unusual than somebody in their 60s and 70s and 80s. But we do see people that are in their 20s and 30s being admitted to the hospital, looking terrible, having significant um, pulmonary disease. And a lot of these have been attending large crowds and parties. So you know, you asked what are some of the long-term consequences of this disease? You know, we all know about the pulmonary manifestations of this disease, inability to breathe, feel like you're suffocating. Um, but then there's yeah, a lot of other systems. Yeah, let me just add from the pulmonary point of view, when people have CTs, when they come to the hospital routinely and they have a CT, uh, even very young people who are asymptomatic, Many of them, almost all of them who have COVID-19 have an abnormal uh, high-resolution chest CT showing probably pulmonary infarcts, small pulmonary infarcts in the lung. And that's what we think that COVID is, mostly are these small pulmonary infarcts that occur in the lung. And these are, these are asymptomatic uh, uh, people. So I think the disease is going to be much more um, long-lasting uh, than we think. But go ahead, Alan. I'd, I'd like to hear more of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Bill. I and mean, We don't know what's going to happen to these young people and older people that have this disease, that have mild symptoms. And five and 10 years from now, what's going to happen to their pulmonary function? Is it going to be adequate? We don't have any idea yet. Um, there's evidence that's mounting that people that even had relatively mild symptoms at home Males have prolonged illness. Some of them may have fatigue, palpitations, irregular heart rate, muscle aches, pins and needles from a neuropathy. Um, and a fair amount of patients in, pre in studies that have been recently published have this chronic fatigue or these other symptoms. So let's look at some of the different organs that can be involved, the, what we call extra pulmonary manifestations of COVID-19, meaning outside the lungs. 
So we can have neurologic symptoms, headaches, dizziness, um, muscle aches, strokes. We can have kidney damage, acute kidney injuries, uh, blood in the urine. A lot of patients in my field have abnormal liver function tests or hepatic symptoms, um, thrombus, which you mentioned. So blood clots in the lungs are where you have part of the lung that can actually die because you have a blood clot in that, pulmonary embolism, uh, heart disease, cardiac yeah, arrhythmias. There was a study, there was a study just published two days ago showing that in ICU uh, patients, more than 25%, if you, if you looked for uh, evidence of a heart attack, up to 20% of patients had evidence of, a, of an acute heart attack, while a larger number had signs of infection, such as inflammation around the heart, we call it pericarditis, or fluid around the heart. All of these things uh, have negative uh, consequences uh, to heart function. Yeah, you're right, Bill. You know, besides a heart attack, you know, you can have irregular heartbeats, uh, inflammation of the heart. Um, you know, endocrine, one of the things we've seen is people that are even minimally overweight are at much higher risk, and that can occurs in the younger age groups also. But endocrine, high blood sugar, and diabetic ketoacidosis, and then it can involve the skin. Uh, you can get rashes and other things, and definitely the gastrointestinal tract. We're seeing that very commonly where people have diarrhea, nausea, or vomiting. And when they have endoscopies, we're seeing actual ulceration and inflammation. So these extra pulmonary manifestations, meaning outside the lungs, are significant, and we need to recognize these. We don't know what's going to be the long-term consequences of this as we go on. But, you know, we're starting to see this is not just a pulmonary disease. This is just not a mild disease. And we've seen kids that think they can go to a party and they go there, they get infected. A lot of them go home and they may pass it to their parents or grandparents um, or they may work in restaurants and other places. But some of these kids get very sick. And so we need to look at this is not just a lung disease. This is something that's going to be significant um, in all populations. If we look at, you know, hospitalization records, yeah, the majority of the people um, that are getting hospitalized are ones that uh, are in the older age group. But in the 30 to 40 year age group, we still see a significant amount of people that are being hospitalized. So I'm sure yeah, you've seen that too. As we mentioned before, um, in, in Italy, they found that 20% of the patients died before they made it to the hospital. That is, they never, they never had a COVID test. They thought that they were sick. They felt a little bit improved. They went to bed, kind of ignored their little indigestion, which they thought was indigestion or their chest pains or their, or their headache and, uh, and went ahead and died. And unfortunately we're not testing those people. We don't have enough tests. So if someone dies, uh, they're just assumed to have whatever cardiopulmonary arrest or or pneumonia or stroke when in fact it's the COVID that's killing these people. Yeah, the, you're absolutely right. We mentioned that previously. We're underestimating the deaths significantly. Um, you know, 142,000 is way underestimated. One of the things let's you know we can close with this is we mentioned before. You know, you're not immune if you're in the 18 to 29 year old age group or the 30 to 39 year old age group. So let's look at a 49 year old age person. They have, we have about 84 
hospitalizations, and this is hospitalizations, not people with trivial symptoms per 100,000. If we look at a 30-year-old, we only dropped to 52 hospitalizations. So it's not even half of that what a 49-year-old is. And if we look at the 18 to 29-year age group, it's close to 27 versus 52 and 39 versus 84 and the 49. So yes, we are seeing younger people. The vast majority still are 85 plus or 65 to 74 or 75 to 84. It goes up astronomically when you get 85 years of age and above. But you are not immune if you're an 18-year-old going to one of these parties. And even if you don't get it, you may have long-term sequela that you don't even realize right now. And you have an obligation to protect yourself as well as those that you're going to come in contact with. And if you want the economy to open up, you need to be protecting yourself, but as well as everybody else around you. Yeah, I I think that's a really important point. If if we want to get back to normal, we have to, you know, do what you've said before. We have to distance. We have to wear masks. We have to be conscious of other people. It's the only way to get back to normal. The, the, the vaccine's going to come, but it's going to be a while. And there's a lot of people who are saying now they're not even going to take the vaccine. So we can't rely on the vaccine to get us back to normal. We have to wear masks. We have to distance. We have to use uh, common sense. No, thank you, Bill. I mean, we could lose another 142,000 people and probably a lot more if we don't start wearing masks. And, you know, we've talked about efficacy of masks, and we'll talk about that in another podcast, but we have some more data on how effective masks are. And stay tuned for that. That'd be a subsequent podcast for how far does secretion spread with different types of masks. All right. Thank you, Alan. As usual, that was a great discussion. Uh, Thank you for your uh, great help. Uh, If you like our podcast, please uh, subscribe to us. Tell your friends about us. we really, all we're really after is to try to get uh, the most truth uh, out to the most uh, people. Thank you, Bill.